You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. They were bored. They had nothing to do. And four friends liked hanging out with each other. So what the heck? They just went and upset a presidential election. That's mostly what happened in 1964. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Paul, Caroline, David, and Sally. They'd first worked together on a losing Senate campaign in Massachusetts. For a candidate... George Cabot Lodge. George didn't have too much going for him. His father was the U.S. ambassador to Vietnam, Henry Cabot Lodge, but he was not his father. And it was tough because his opponent was Ted Kennedy, who at the time was the president's younger brother. And in the state of Massachusetts, they lost that election, but they enjoyed politics, the adrenaline, the excitement. Paul Grendel, the nephew of Senator Leverett Sullenstall, along with the daughter of that senator, Sally, and Caroline Williams and David Goldberg, opened up a Lodge for President office in Boston. Big sign, Lodge for President. But it wasn't the campaign for George Lodge. They were attempting to run his father, Henry Cabot Lodge. David Goldberg later recounted what had happened. That first campaign for George Lodge, he said, was very imaginative and well-run, really a lot of fun, though ultimately a failure. We missed that high, and we were looking for an encore. Running George's father, Henry, the ambassador, the former senator, UN ambassador, the grandson of the Massachusetts legend in politics, friend of Theodore Roosevelt, Henry Cabot Lodge Sr., That sounded like a good idea. And so, Lodge for President, the sign read in Boston. But it turns out that Massachusetts has a law that to open a headquarters with someone's name out on it, they must consent. This team did not have the consent of the person whose campaign they were running. The state could find no such consent, and in 1964, they were forced to shut down. New Hampshire didn't have a similar law. So the friends loaded up the truck and the sign, and Paul Grindel and the others went to Concord from Time Magazine. Now they started keeping files, news clippings, collected small donations, brought in one-time Eisenhower public relations man Robert Mullen to act as coordinator. And through George Lodge, they kept the ambassador informed of their activities. He didn't resist, but didn't endorse either. He, from his memoirs at least, didn't take it very seriously. They picked up volunteers as they went along, got a hold of mailing lists, sent out pledge cards and brochures. They found 21 area chairmen who found 10 district leaders each and signed up 10 district captains who would then get 40 voters apiece. The thinking was, Paul Grendel, who really became the ringleader of the effort, said, if we can get 20,000 votes for Lodge, we're really rolling. And we can tell the old man, please, 
run for president. If we get 15,000, we'll still continue the race. But if we get under 15,000, we'll fold up quietly. Grindle was involved in all kinds of business. He was crafty and he knew about direct mail before a lot of people did. Sure, people could send letters to the post office, but in mass, that was a business enterprise. But Grindle had run a scientific instrument export company, and he knew how to sell things to people in different places. A man with a delicate, satiric touch of mischief, the New York Times said. His father, Maynard, was connected to Saltonstall. He was the farm manager for Richard Saltonstall, was the brother of the senator. And that senator had replaced Henry Cabot Lodge when he was a senator, elected to Massachusetts in 1936. And Henry Cabot Lodge decided, after Pearl Harbor, to leave and join the armed forces and to join the war. Saltonstall became a senator then. As a result, Paul Grindle was kind of close to the action, developed a liking for politics, for deals, and the money, and he applied it to his business at first. He had a very successful business. Grindle was bringing in scientific equipment like microscopes out of the Soviet Union. Now, you couldn't sell these in America. What he would do is he'd bring them out on Scandinavian airlines, and he had arranged with that airline a fly-now-pay-later program. Then he'd turn around and sell the microscopes to the Indian government in exchange for Indian nuts. And it turned out the British Merchant Navy liked Indian nuts and wanted them for their ships. So there he'd get pounds, and now these Soviet microscopes would be two degrees away. He'd take the British pounds, go to Scotland, and get sweaters made in a factory up there, and these would be sold to Brooks Brothers. The going rate for sweaters was more generous than the currency exchange, paid him pounds, and got back dollars. His business grew fantastically. He was making $2 million a year by the time of the New Hampshire primary of 1964. He had extraordinary ideas, David Goldberg, a lawyer in Boston, who also joined this campaign, said he always thought something was wonderful just over the next hill. Sometimes it was, and sometimes it wasn't. But he was about to find something nice over the hill. Here's from the New York Times. His complexion is ruddy, his hair jet black, and little seems to escape his eyes as they peer from horn-rimmed glasses. A man of medium height and weight with promise of expanding waistline, Mr. Grindle has the theatrical look of a promoter. He had a knack for business, and here applied it to politics. He had acquired a mailing list of 96,000 Republican voters. 96,000 of them. Lodge didn't have any campaign. He wasn't even campaigning officially. But they had this list. As far as he was concerned, that was good as gold. There was a reason why Henry Cabot Lodge could not campaign in New Hampshire, had no agenda, wasn't on the ballot. Because he worked at the pleasure of President Lyndon Johnson, who they would like to make his opponent in a potential general election. There were no issues that he stood for because he was this country's U.S. ambassador to South Vietnam and couldn't make political statements. He had just been Nixon's vice presidential candidate in 1960 on that ticket, which did not win, but came close. But these four were running their campaign in New Hampshire more for the excitement and the challenge, not for any deep-seated principles. George Lodge says, In November, December of 63, they came and had lunch with me. They were bored in the winter, 
and they missed the campaign. They were looking for something exciting to do. And so Paul or David said, why don't we see if we can run the old man? And they did. In running the old man, there was an advantage because they're hitting just as something's going on in the Republican Party. And that is that they have two major contenders, but people don't like either one of them. One of them was well-liked, but did something that angered people. And the other was just not well-liked, except among a small group in the Republican Party. Let our Republicanism so focused and so dedicated not be made fuzzy and futile by unthinking and stupid labels. That person was Barry Goldwater. Judges too conservative for most of the party. He wasn't seen as electable. He had a knack for saying things that got him into trouble. His first comments are about Social Security. He wants to make it voluntary. He has a whole explanation of it, but everyone thinks he's getting rid of Social Security. Makes a comment about Florida, sawing off Florida for the rest of the nation. His biggest problem are the things that he says. Theodore White, in The Making of the President 1964, describes this process that journalists go through. And I think it's interesting because probably a lot of it going on 2016, 2020, and today, where the candidate is just saying outrageous stuff verbally. And journalists at that time, you know, had ethics standards they had to live by. I don't want to say they don't have them now, but they were pretty strict then. And it was like, could you just quote the person? It's almost you're doing damage to them by quoting verbatim. Journalists had to decide whether they would either quote Barry Goldwater verbatim or try to explain what he said, like a good journalist would do informing the reader. He didn't really mean this. The other candidate. I warned that the Republican Party was Nelson Rockefeller. He's the governor of New York, a very promising candidate. Is in real danger of subversion by a radical, well-financed, highly disciplined majority. Except he makes a change in his personal life in 1963. One that wouldn't be so much of an issue today, maybe a little bit, but then was a killer. I'm very happy, but I know you'll understand if I'm slightly overwhelmed at the moment. Okay. <laughs> Nelson Rockefeller had met Happy Murphy through James Murphy. That was a friend of his who was a virologist at an institute that Rockefeller funded. And Happy became a volunteer on Rocky's governorship campaign and then became private secretary as governor. They had an extramarital affair because they were quickly married in 1963, but both had to get divorced to do it. And they had to go to different states. They had to go to Idaho and other states to get this done, because New York just did not allow divorce. And he's the governor of the state in getting divorced. So you can imagine the kind of ripple effect of this thing. Rockefeller was also 18 years older than Happy. And he divorced his first wife, Mary Todd Hunter Clark, in 1962. They had children. He had been married to her for 30 years. Happy and her husband divorced in 1963 for reasons of grievous mental anguish and irreconcilable differences. The reaction to this activity, you know, it wasn't like, oh, just leave him alone. That's his personal. No, it was swift in the cribbage tables and Tony lawns of Republican politics at this time. 
The new Mrs. Rockefeller, the former Margarita Fittler Murphy of Philadelphia and New York, was divorced last month from a virologist at the Rockefeller Institute. The former Mrs. Rockefeller, also a Philadelphia socialite, was divorced from the governor a year ago. Just what effect the dual divorces and subsequent marriage among close friends will have on the governor's presidential prospects, nobody can tell. He might get a better judge and jury in the general election, not sure, but in Republican primaries, where married women are a big part, women's groups, women's Republican clubs are a big part of politics in 1964. Here's a Michigan Republican Party official talking to the New York Times. The rapidity of it all. He gets a divorce, she gets a divorce, and the indication of a breakup of two homes? Our country doesn't like broken homes. William Roth later became a senator, now head of the Delaware Democratic Party. No doubt it has hurt him. Richard Kleindeist, who would be involved in Watergate later, now the head of the Arizona Party. He'd be a less desirable candidate. About the only state chairman that really supports Rockefeller in this is the New York one, his local chairman, and Nevada, where divorces are popular. A British journalist, Gene Campbell, hits on a comparison a lot of people are making at the time. Already people are comparing Happy Murphy to the Duchess of Windsor when she was plain Miss Simpson. Senator Prescott Bush, Connecticut Republican, father and grandfather of a future president, was particularly damning. Have we come to the point where a governor can desert his wife and children and persuade a young woman to abandon her four children and husband? Have we come to the point where one of the two great parties will confer its greatest honor on such a one? I venture to hope not. This is from one of Rockefeller's political friends. So there's this chasm in the party because they don't really want Goldwater, a lot of them, people like Prescott Bush, but they can't support Rockefeller or think, more importantly, that voters won't. Here's the New York Times. As the couple left for a honeymoon in Venezuela, exposés retailed gossip of their extramarital affair, and detailed their out-of-state divorces. Up to this time, no divorced man had ever won the presidency. Adlai Stevenson tried. He ran in 52 and 56, lost to Eisenhower. He was running against Eisenhower, so it wasn't really about divorce. And you had that whole King Edward Wallace Simpson thing floating around. Polls that showed Mr. Rockefeller leading Goldwater quickly turned around only a few weeks ago, Governor Nelson Rockefeller was far out in front, the Philadelphia Inquirer said. Now, abruptly, the picture has changed. The Rockefeller image has been damaged. There were a lot of talk about possible people. There's even some press boomlets. All right. We're not doing polls all the time at this time in 1964, but there's a lot of talk in the press. You're hearing about Romney of Michigan, Scranton of Pennsylvania. President Eisenhower's brother, Milton. But none of them are really consistently materializing in the press, and none of them are running. Hydrogen chloride. That may not be the best nickname, but a lot of people called him that. Not because he was any kind of caustic chemical or anything like that but because the chemical has the same initials as he, H-C-L, hydrogen chloride. (laughs) 
the tail end of 1963, Eisenhower, the former president, titular leader of the party, takes a step. He calls Henry Cabot Lodge and asks, would he come back from Vietnam to run for president? He declines. Would he come back just to run the party, just to put out the pieces together of this party? Eisenhower knows Lodge can do it because guess who ran Eisenhower's campaign in 1952 for the primaries? I think Eisenhower is going to be nominated. I think Eisenhower appeals to all elements in the Republican Party, all factions, all groups. He showed it in New Hampshire. He showed it in New Jersey, Massachusetts, everywhere. They've had a chance to express themselves. Well, Senator, I'm sure that our audience very much appreciates your views tonight, and thank you very much for being with us, sir. Lodge declines to do this as well. It looks like New Hampshire is going to be high noon between two candidates that aren't very well liked in the party, Goldwater and Rockefeller. Rockefeller's kind of liking this. He's saying New Hampshire's going to be significant. He's setting expectations, raising the bar in the press, saying that a primary is going to be significant like that because he thinks... It's a northern state. He thinks he can beat Goldwater. And if he does, it's going to be an important victory for him to shove off some of these complaints. No one is thinking about Henry Cabot Lodge right now. But it's not to say he's not well regarded. He is. People know him. Correct that you are not in show business. (laughs) I am not. Here's from the TV show, What's My Line in the Mid-50s. Are you in the Republican Party? I am. And where contestants try to guess who a person is. If it has a relation to politics, are you appointed rather than elected? I am. Have you anything to do with the Secretary of State and Foreign Affairs? I have something to do with Foreign Affairs. Are you in the Cabinet? I am. They very quickly guess Henry Cabot Lodge and recognize him and know his voice. Uh, I think I know your voice, and I'm not going to pass, and I may be wrong, but I would say that you are Senator uh, Lodge. (laughs) (laughs) Henry Cabot Lodge uh, was well known for being a senator that joined the Army upon Pearl Harbor, and then also tried to rejoin the Senate 1942. He was reelected. Um, Roosevelt let it be known that people who had joined the Army should probably pick one or the other. He didn't want people being in Congress and also serving at the same time. So he followed that, took his Senate seat back later. Very popular in Massachusetts, well regarded in the country. I mean, there's a few you know comments about him. Some people think he's a little snobby and things like that, but... Everybody's got their downsides. Have you any announced opposition in Massachusetts as yet? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Is the young Mr. Kennedy uh, right. going to be your opponent there? He's announced, yes. He's already announced. Do you expect to have any... Is there any opposition in the Republican primary? No, not yet, no. And you don't expect any? I don't know of any. But I know the politics is an eternal mystery and it's full of surprises. That's what makes it interesting. So Grindle and the three friends decide to sell Henry Cabot Lodge to New Hampshire voters the same way Grindle sold microscopes. This is through direct mail. They get a list of Republican voters. 
and deliver the message to those 96,000 mailboxes that he knows where they are. Now, the message would be this. Pretty easy message. Just show your support for Henry Cabot Lodge. Write him in Vietnam. That's what the postcard suggests. Come on now. Thank a patriot for his service, right? Ambassador Lodge, U.S. Embassy, Saigon. But they're not sending these cards to Saigon. They're sending them to care of Lodge for President, Concord, New Hampshire. And he attaches a postage-paid envelope. It's expensive, but very effective. So no one has to spend any money or really do anything. They just have to send this card back thanking Henry Cabot Lodge for his service. They don't know what's going to happen when they send these out, but in the weeks that follow, return mail floods the office. We were surprised. 86,000 letters, David Goldberg says. And what you've now got, you have a candidate who's not walking the state. Goldwater and Rockefeller are going all over, making speeches at little chambers of commerce and little cafes and things like that. They're always in Concord. Lodge is not there at all. But he's got a base now. That's a pretty good return rate, by the way, uh, having done a little marketing myself at times. 8%, not bad. So they do a second mailing. Now they take these 8,600 respondents and take their votes for granted and say, pick up two more votes. People love to be part of something. Now they're part of something. It's kind of well known that Eisenhower and Lodge are connected. People aren't happy with Rocky or with Barry. The kind of the campaign smartly assumes that if you wrote a letter just saying thank you to a patriot in American service abroad, you're a Lodge supporter. And they're asking them to pick up two more votes now. They use the word votes. Whatever happens, Grindle's saying at the time, politics can be fun. No campaign rallies, no local headquarters, no fundraisers, no candidate. They do decide to do one more thing. They go to TV. So Grindle finds footage of Lodge. See, they can't get Lodge because, first of all, he's not going to do it. And secondly, there's no TV footage of Lodge running for president. He's not in New Hampshire. So they find old footage of Lodge and Eisenhower. Eisenhower endorsing Henry Cabot Lodge. He spent $750 run as a TV commercial in New Hampshire. It was an endorsement for Henry Cabot Lodge of vice for vice president. The ad didn't exactly explain that. People see this and see this connection. Um, and so what's happening? Like, why didn't Eisenhower object? Why didn't Lodge object? You're not getting quite objections from these moderate forces in the party because they're not quite happy with Goldwater. But they're also not endorsing this campaign either. Lodge, through his son, says, just keep me informed. While he's in Vietnam uh, serving, He's got Nelson Rockefeller calling him. Do I have your assurance you're not running for president? You're not running for president. And Lodge says every time, yes. And it's absolutely true. He's not running for president. He didn't start these guys up. He's not telling them to knock it off either, which he probably could. But he's not starting up. In his own memoirs, he he really thinks that it's just a bunch of guys in it for fun and nothing's going to happen from this. Now, I do want to explain something here because it's it's probably... Odd to think about a man who's a Republican serving under a Democratic president. But that's what happens with Henry Cabot Lodge. He is former senator. He is the 
it's going to be John Kennedy that's going to beat him in a Senate race in 1952 for a bunch of reasons. One of the reasons is, I mean, the organization of the Kennedy team is superb, but also Henry Cabot Lodge is busy running Eisenhower's campaign, and he really views it that he spent so much time with Eisenhower, he lost his own Senate seat. No matter, Eisenhower appoints him for UN ambassador. He serves a long time to critical period, so that's the guy that's going to come up on the TV cameras when the Soviets say something in order to answer them. Well, every time that a uh, communist speaks in the United Nations, I make it a point to speak myself, uh, so that in the news story that goes out over the world, there's always something about the viewpoint of the United States of America. For instance, like during the U-2 scandal, you know, it's, it's Lodge that has to answer the Soviets' accusations. So it's a high-profile foreign policy position. From his military service, from his diplomatic service, he meets a lot of people in both military and state branches. He's a very well-known figure now. After Kennedy is elected president, he goes to a function and he sees Henry Cabot Lodge there. And one of the things is that Kennedy would try to go to the cocktail hours first and meet as many people as he could and not have to stay through all the boring speeches and be kind of a prisoner you know, while people are making like hour-long speeches, you know, go to the cocktail hours, meet everybody, get your political work done. And he goes to one of these and he happens to see Henry Cabot Lodge. And it's like, Henry Cabot Lodge had just been on the vice presidential ticket and lost the election. Well, what are you doing here? And um, Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Lodge says, I was at that time in Washington on a tour of duty in the Pentagon because I was a reserve officer. This was before I'd retired as a reserve officer. The president asked me what I was doing in Washington, and I said that I was on a tour of active duty in the Pentagon. Then he left with his aide, General C.V. Clifton. Clifton knows Lodge. I learned later that he said to General Clifton, I didn't realize that Lodge was in a reserve officer. Reserve officer. So he must have concocted the idea as a result of this, and Kennedy thinks about it. He's got a political situation, a foreign policy 
situation in Vietnam. It's tough. Puts a Democrat in there. Could be career ruining for some people. It's, it's a tough spot, Southeast Asia right now. Um, starts with Eisenhower, gets handed off to Kennedy. He wants to put a Republican in there who can do it. And here's a guy that's still in the reserve. So obviously concerned with duty. A day or two later, I received a call from General Clifton. We met at the Army Navy Club, and he asked me whether I'd be interested in a post. I said that I really didn't want a job, but if there was some service I could render, I would be glad to do it. I also had a talk with Dean Rusk at the time. Dean Rusk is a Republican that Kennedy has put in as Secretary of State. And I told him, having an eye on Vietnam, that if I ever got to the point where young Americans were in combat... I would certainly volunteer my services. This is what Lodge says. Because I feel that when young Americans are in combat, older Americans, if their health is good, and if they can afford it financially, should volunteer their services. Isn't that something? So President Kennedy calls him, asks him to serve in Saigon, and Henry Cabot Lodge does. It's not an easy time. So one of the things that Henry Cabot Lodge is going to be there for is the unraveling of the South Vietnamese government at the time under President Diem. There's even some assassination talk about assassinating the U.S. ambassador by the South Vietnamese, you know, by the by the Diem government, who's trying to stay in power. Um, they're also going to get caught up in the charge. It still remains today that Kennedy was responsible for the overthrow, which Lodge and Kennedy both deny. What Lodge is going to end up doing, serving from this point until the mid-60s, is, is going to provide a certain amount of cover for both Kennedy and Johnson in their activities to in Vietnam up until the point where there's no way to hold back criticism. Because up to like, say, 67, you criticize Vietnam, you're criticizing this very well-respected member of the Republican Party. Now, a few people did, and they got uh, backlash, which we're going to talk about So Goldwater is making mistakes with New Hampshire voters. The one we already mentioned, talking about Social Security and a vol- making it a voluntary program. It's very popular in New Hampshire. They don't understand his confusing substitution program. And it really just comes out as if he's against security, Social Security. Guess who's not helping with this, of course, is Rockefeller, who's saying, you know, who will, will speak to crowds and see if he sees older people. He's going to be like, well, I'm going to make sure that Social Security continues and all of that. Goldwater adds something else. He sees that perhaps he's going to lose the New Hampshire primary, maybe. So he wants to downgrade its importance. And he says, the person who wins in California will win the nomination. Did turn out to be right, spoiler alert, but that didn't endear himself to people in New Hampshire where they take the primary very seriously. Not only that, three days before the primary, he skips New Hampshire. But he makes a little note. By the way, Lodge will probably come in second. He'll probably beat Rockefeller. So he's noticing that there's starting to be this movement and people are talking about Henry Cabot Lodge, even though he's not campaigning. He's at a stop in Newport, New Hampshire, and he criticizes Lodge. He says, Lodge has gotten things all balled up in Vietnam. Now it's on. I mean, this little fledging campaign that's not even a campaign, and one of the major candidates has now said something. First of all, it's a mistake, and this is Goldwater's thing. He he is the content of his campaign. He has campaign staff who's running a lot of the mechanics. 
but he's the content of his campaign. And he decides, and he decides to make this statement. What he doesn't think about, that a professional politician might, is that you've now elevated Lodge in status. And reporters are going to, once you've attacked him, reporters are going to start talking about it. Goldwater led up into the poll, in the polls, but criticism is providing a bit of publicity. Now, here's what Paul Grindle, who's running this effort, says. What they're looking for is for Rockefeller to say something. If Rockefeller had defended Henry Cabot Lodge, we would have packed our tents. I swear it. If he even said, hey, me and Henry, we're in the same boat. We have to stop Goldwater. If he did anything like that, even if we wanted to run a campaign, he would have pulled the pin out from others. But instead, what Rockefeller does later in the week is attack Lodge on Vietnam as well. Criticism now backfires on both of these candidates because for a lot of New Hampshire people, they're thinking, well, this guy's got a tough job. You both are trying to run for a tough job. This guy's serving right now, and you're going to take a swipe at him just to score some political points? And they're getting more and more of these mailers. Don't be satisfied with the available. Select the best, this mailing says. Contrasting Lodge with Rockefeller and Goldwater. They're getting 26,000 people now to pledge that they'll vote for Henry Cabot Lodge. They don't know how many real votes that's going to turn into, but they've at least got these pledges. There's now direct requests for Lodge to lend his name to this effort, but he tells his brother, I'm certainly not going into the New Hampshire primaries. Now, there's some reasons why Lodge fits New Hampshire. Most of the state's population lives within 50 miles of Boston. He's a New Englander. He's kind of one of them own, one of their own. He has the right views in foreign policy for the state, the popular New England. His views on civil rights are, if we were to win the struggle of the minds of men, particularly in Africa and Asia, we must show at home that we practice what we preach about equal rights for all, Lodge had said. Well, now, after Rockefeller's criticized and... Goldwater had joined in criticism of Lodge. They do something. They send a third mailing. And this third mailing simply has instructions, a picture of the ballot, and here's where you write in the name of Henry Cabot Lodge. Goldwater leaves. He said, uh, I have it made to some people in the campaign staff. He's going to California to run. And then March 10th, the New Hampshire primary, and by 718 p.m., Walter Cronkite is on the TV announcing that Henry Cabot Lodge has won. He gets 33,000 votes. So they had worried about how many of the 26,000 pledges they were going to get, or if they could even get like up to 15,000 votes. They end up getting 33,000. Goldwater gets 20,692. It's actually a huge win. Rockefeller gets 19,504. So he's pretty close to Goldwater, but Goldwater beats him. Richard Nixon, who's also a low-key write-in candidate, not much going on there, gets 15,000. Maine Senator Margaret Chase Smith gets 2,000. And Harold Statson, who runs in every election by now, gets 1,300. So now, all of these people who were elected officials and big known names, former governors and stuff in New Hampshire... We're running it to be delegates to their convention. Can't go to the convention this year because they were either on the Goldwater or most of them on the Rockefeller ticket. It's going to be 14 unknown delegates who were sent to San Francisco to the Cow Palace to that convention in 1964. 
After 11 p.m., national news TV shows need something, but they can't get the ambassador. So George Lodge comes out and thanks the people of New Hampshire for this vote of confidence in his father. This stuns the political world. Here's time. Many observers remarked the situation similar to 1952, when Eisenhower unexpectedly defeated Senator Robert Taft, then leader of the Republican Party's conservative faction. The five-member committee that pulled off the Henry Cabot Lodge coup in New Hampshire yesterday has a sort of musketeer loyalty for one another. They had a, well-we-did-it attitude this morning. Only when we was out of earshot were the four able to say that Mr. Grindle had been the strategist. On the primary night, they find... U.S. Ambassador Lodge, near the Vietnamese border. He descends the tarmac in Saigon. He's wearing a straw hat. Sleeves are rolled up. The reporters ask him, What do you think about the New Hampshire primary? I am precluded by Foreign Service regulations from talking politics, he tells them. Are you happy? I am happy by nature. I goofed up somewhere, Goldwater says. Rockefeller's devastated on it, but he gets energy and decides he's going to go to Oregon and try to win that state, which eventually he's going to do. In fact, Theodore White suggests that perhaps the very hopelessness of the outlook changes Rockefeller's effort with a warmth, a yearning, an intensity of emotion that transmitted better than his normally jolly yet precise speeches. He does win Oregon. So it's a race, but Goldwater gets enough delegates in California and other places to dominate the convention. Lodge gets nowhere after New Hampshire, surprisingly enough. Goldwater does the opposite. He is so thrown off by this result that he wants to quit his campaign. His advisors talk him out of it, and he decides to skip Oregon and go to California. The Lodge campaign now exists, and Lodge actually leaves his post to run as a candidate. Rockefeller does get it, 93,000 votes to Lodge's 78,000 votes in Oregon, which effectively ends Henry Lodge's campaign. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off, an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-off launches April 9th. Uh, It continues a trend that we've noted here that vice presidential candidates on a losing ticket tend to get a lot of attention in the party and from the press, but don't win elections. You have a possibility for 2024. We'll see what happens with campaign pence. Uh, It's devastating for Goldwater. He thinks about quitting. Uh, Rockefeller's been dealt a blow. I mean, throws off the whole race. This really determined the 1964 race. I mean, without this, perhaps Rockefeller has a win and then go to the convention. He doesn't get that opportunity. He has to start real late before he gets his first victory in Oregon. That changes 
who the nominee is. It's Goldwater. And that changes who wins the 1964 election. Perhaps it's Lyndon Johnson. What happens to these guys? The four that um, did this campaign will be involved in Republican politics a bit now for their in their future years. And they're all going to have a role in electing Edward Brooke, the first African-American senator who is a Republican uh, elected to the Senate from Massachusetts a few years after this primary. They'll see both these events as the crowning achievements in their political lives. Here's Theodore White from The Making of the President, 1964. It was as if the Red Queen and Through the Looking Glass had planned the elections of 1964. All should have a prize. Lodge should have New Hampshire. Rockefeller should have Oregon. Goldwater should have California. And Lyndon Johnson should have the country. This would just be a kind of novelty of politics. It does show you that surprises can happen, particularly in states where a small campaign would be managed. We've mostly reduced the ability for some surprises because we're watching these states all the time. And now we're watching even South Carolina and additional Nevada and additional states that would be perhaps wine testers for the rest of the nation. Uh, But you do see surprises, for instance, in even the pre-primary press where somebody will just start to, um, uh, you know, start to build. I mean, can we we forget Herman Cain and the bubble for that in 2012 or the short Gingrich bubble in 2012? I mean, so things like this do, do happen. What's important for 1964 and for national history, really, is that, no doubt about it, New Hampshire precluded Rockefeller from a chance of a real comeback. He did win Oregon, but it wasn't enough. And because Goldwater had left the contest in Oregon, it wasn't seen as a Goldwater versus Rockefeller in the way California was. Losing that New Hampshire meant that Rockefeller had to start late in getting a win. And that means a lot when you're talking about all those press stories and the like. Or if he if he won the New Hampshire primary, he could have turned around and say, see, you know, I'm not affected by my personal situation. And so, in effect, Henry Cabot Lodge's win in New Hampshire, this little kind of trick campaign, does go a long way to put Goldwater in the nomination. And then Lyndon Johnson gets a big landslide, landslide as a result of that. Any other combination of activities in New Hampshire might have led to a different result in American history. I want to thank you for listening. The website is www.myhistorycanbeatupyourpolitics.com. Please go to the website. We have a lot of other episodes. If you're a new listener to the show, why don't you go to the website at www.myhistorycanbeatupyourpolitics.com and check it out. Also, you can join our Patreon. You can donate. You can spread the word about the program. All that helps. I want to thank you for listening.